Good evening, y'all. Thank you to the front row over here. I appreciate your uh, kindness and hospitality. Uh, my name is Jason. It's, I'm really thankful to be with you tonight. Um, I, I am thankful to get to preach out of the book of Mark in this particular passage um, because it is so central to uh, the Christian proclamation of the good news, which we call the gospel. Um, and yet it is something which we resist with like every ounce of our being. Um, in, in the book of Matthew, Mark, or the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is only one thing that we are told uh, that Jesus speaks about plainly. Like sometimes Jesus speaks in parables. Often he's hard to understand and he regularly answers questions with questions. If you read the Bible, you'll experience this. You know, he has a lot of head-scratching moments. But there is one thing which he spoke about with utter clarity. And that is that he must suffer and be rejected and die. And then raise again from the dead. And that he must suffer and die was one of the hardest things for his disciples to believe. That, he, that we must suffer and die as followers of him is one of the hardest things for us to believe. But if we miss this... Not only do we miss the heart of God, but we miss out on the incredible opportunities that he holds out for us in this world. And we miss out on how much we belong to him and to his people in this world and in the age to come. Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. So our scripture passage is in Mark chapter 8. You can follow along on the website or in your Bibles. Um, uh, it opens with Jesus and his disciples on the way to this region of, of Caesarea Philippi. And, and on the way there, like while they're walking, Jesus asks his disciples a question. Who, who does everybody say that I am? And his disciples answer with a variety of, of responses, all of which have a kind of importance and dignity to them. You know, some people say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're a prophet. However you read it, Jesus had a pretty significant reputation with the crowds. But then he turns and he asks his disciples not what everybody else is saying, but who do you say that I am. And in a very real sense, that question is also the one we must answer. Who do you say Jesus is? It's not enough for you to know what I say about Jesus or what your church says about Jesus or what the culture has said about Jesus or even what the Bible says about Jesus. We can derive a lot of comfort by accumulating opinions and thoughts and ideas. Some of us like knowing all the different sides of different claims and statements and arguments. I, I think somehow thinking if I know what everybody else says, then I'm fine or something. But none of those answer the question about what you have to say for yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? And it's worth noting that this question isn't presented to the disciples at the end of their lives. It's presented to them right in the middle of their lives, on the way, or in a word we call today. This question is before you and I today as well. It's not a question for you to wait until all the data comes in and you're considering it during your final minutes on your deathbed. It's a question for you today. Who do you say Jesus is? Peter, on behalf of the other disciples... It just hit me how much I love Peter's boldness. 
because they were probably all terrified like you would be if I was like, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say you're in? But Peter, on behalf of the other disciples, says, you're the Christ. Or Matthew's gospel, you're the Christ and you're the son of God. In other gospel accounts, because this story is reported multiple times, we read that when Peter said this, when he made the claim that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus praised him and he told Peter, upon you, I am going to build my church. Peter, you and the disciples have rightly said that I am the Christ, the anointed one, the Savior King sent by God. And Jesus tells them that they know this because the Father in heaven must have revealed it to them. And then he told them, shh, don't tell anyone. Isn't that interesting that the entire first half of the Gospel of Mark is concerned with this question about who Jesus is? And now, for the first time, we have one of his followers claiming that he is, in fact, the Christ. It's a huge moment, this big reveal. It's a moment you're waiting for in the story. And then Jesus tells them to keep it under wraps. He strictly charged them to tell no one about this. And then from that time on, he began to teach them that he must suffer many things and be rejected and killed, and then in three days rise again. It's almost as if they can't even hear that Jesus will be resurrected because of what he said first. That he was going to suffer and be rejected and die, and he says it plainly. Here's that word, plainly. It's the only time this is used, this word, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He began to teach them that he must suffer, be rejected, and die. And as he began to teach them this, Peter took him aside and Peter began to rebuke him. And it's a really interesting way to word it. It's not on accident. As Jesus began to teach this, Peter began to rebuke him. It's as if Jesus starts talking about suffering. It's as if as Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying, we start telling him this cannot be the way. When Jesus talks about comfort and peace and promises of abundance in this life. We do we want to hear it more and more and more. Those are great. Those are the things we tattoo and write in our journals and all that kind of stuff, right? Even people who don't believe in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God would be fine sitting in this room if I'm making promises about Jesus giving comfort and peace and prosperity in this world. We eat that stuff up. But Jesus begins to talk about suffering and rejection and death. And we do not like that stuff. We resist it. At least Peter does. And so Peter pulls him aside. It's kind, isn't it? Peter's like, Jesus, come here. i got to tell you something real quick. Come here. Not in front of everybody else. He's probably trying to comfort him. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus. In Matthew's account, he actually prays. He's like, God, may it never be, Lord. Surely you don't have to suffer and die. And as Peter is telling Jesus this, Jesus rebukes Peter. And it's one of the most intense things you can imagine him saying. I think it would be one of the most intense things any of us could say to anybody. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And it's one of the most memorable and, and intense exchanges in the entire Bible. Jesus calling one of his disciples Satan. 
Just moments ago, he had told Peter he was going to build a church upon him. This man who is nicknamed The Rock, who is told a church would be founded upon him like a block of stone, has now become a stumbling block in the way of Jesus. And Jesus calls it what it is. Satan. I'm really thankful the lights are on in this moment because I can't make eye contact with you guys as I say the word Satan, okay? Uh, the, the word Satan in the Bible, if you don't know, means accuser or the accuser. And it may refer to a personal being created by God, but it is also a role. It's a title. It's an office. It's something, something can be like Satan or function as Satan, like a serpent. There's been times Matt Nichol has called me dad. He's like, thanks, dad. You know, what, because I'm acting in some way like a dad. Or you might, you might say to somebody, thanks, coach, when they're embodying the role of a coach in your life for a moment, you see. Like, they, they don't all of a sudden become somebody else in that moment. Matt, I don't think Matt thinks I'm actually his dad, you know, in that moment, right? But what, what, what he's saying is that right now you're acting in a certain way that embodies this role. And when something begins to embody or personify the opposite of God's kingdom work, it is satanic. Like abuse, pornography, gluttony. Peter may be even trying, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I think that this honestly is happening. Peter's probably even trying to comfort Jesus. Encouraging him to do something, though, other than what he was sent to do by his father. To choose power and comfort and security rather than suffering and rejection and death for the sake of love. And when Jesus recognizes how much Peter sounds like Satan in his wilderness temptations, read Matthew chapter 4, encouraging him to go another way than the way marked out for him by the father, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I wonder if it's so emphatic because the temptation is so real in his humanity. Do you ever have that experience? Like that, you re- that when you're really tempted by something, you can't be like, no, thank you. You have to flee. You have to run. You have to reject outright. You can't go slow dancing with that kind of temptation. You have to run. And I wonder if that's what's happening. I think it is in Jesus' humanity. Soon Peter would be invited to see the revealed glory of Jesus. In the very next chapter, Jesus brings Peter up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And he will be personally ministered to by Jesus and restored in affection and love by Jesus. And and he would would be the one through whom God does, in fact, birth the church. Peter did not become Satan. Peter was acting like Satan, embodying Satan's lies. And Jesus calls it out for what it is. Get behind me, Satan, because that's where everything belongs. Everything in all creation belongs behind Jesus. Everything in its proper place is lined up behind and under the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Get behind me, Satan, because that's where you belong. It can be easy for many of us to believe the lies of Satan. This is something I think we can learn from this moment. It can be so easy for us to believe the lies of Satan when we're in our darkest moments, right? When we're in the throes of depression, when we're isolated and lonely, when we're just racked with guilt and shame. In those moments, I think if someone comes up and encourages us to watch out for the lies of Satan, I think most of us probably know what they mean, even if we haven't thought about Satan much. Right? Like how much we deal with lies when we're in our hardest moments, right? 
here, we see that it's not just in the worst moments of our lives that we need to be on guard against Satan. It's also in our best. Here, Jesus is being offered comfort from a friend. Because Peter, here's what I mean. I didn't write this in my notes. Peter had just had like a really cool moment. It's like one of Peter's shining moments. Who do you say that I am? And he's like, you're the Christ and the son of God. (laughs) Peter, son of Jonah. Oh gosh, upon you, I'm going to build my church. I mean, this is a big, cool moment. And I wonder if, if what's going on in Peter in the very next scene, as Jesus starts talking about suffering, is Peter and his newfound sort of like, man, this is so cool what Jesus promised me. And, and I just, I, man, I, let's keep this streak going. Jesus, come here, let me tell you something real quick. Hold up. Don't, you don't have to do that, man. And now Peter's, what is he trying to lead Jesus? I, I, don't, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. But this is what, something we can learn in this moment. It's not just in our worst moments that we face the lies and the attacks and something of Satan. It might be like Peter also in some of our best. Here, Jesus is being offered comfort from a friend. He's being told something he probably really wants to hear, that you don't have to suffer. That sounds so nice, but Jesus says it sounds like Satan. I must also put on the full armor of God to be able to withstand the attacks of the devil when I'm successful, not just when I'm at my worst when I achieve a great and worldly victory, when I am praised, when I am great by the world's standards, when everything seems to be going well, there too I should be on guard because it's in those moments that I am perhaps most tempted to believe that the world can satisfy the desires of my heart and I don't need to follow Jesus. And we are surrounded by messages like this in our culture. Top 10 lists for the easiest and highest paying jobs. Tips for how to work less and retire early. Wisdom for an easy and hurt-free romance. When someone is suffering, aren't we often so quick to tell them what they could have done differently to avoid the suffering? Or what they should do now to get out of it quickly? Our whole culture is bent on securing a life without suffering and putting off death as long and as much as we can. And it begins to creep into our understanding of following Jesus and the way of his kingdom. And so we have things like the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel teaching us that somehow we can follow Jesus without suffering. Which is really confusing when you're following Jesus and then you experience suffering. Jesus says, no, everyone who would come after me must take up their cross and deny themselves and follow me. The way of Jesus is cross-shaped. The way of Jesus is through suffering, not around it. And if we forget this, if we reject it like Peter wanted to do in that moment, we forget that the heart of God is revealed to us in the Son. We forget that God's love is on display, not simply in His glory and in His power, but that He would be willing to be rejected and exposed and wounded and ultimately die with something none of us would choose to do if we didn't have to. To show you that nothing can separate you from his love. Rejecting him, wounding him, betraying him, killing him. He loves you to the end and nothing you can do will change that. If you forget his sufferings and you only think about his glory and his miracles and his power and his might, you will miss the very picture and fact of his very heart for you. 
and if you forget that we too are called to suffer and are following him, then when you suffer, you might mistakenly think that he's forgotten you. You might believe the lies of Satan, that God doesn't care for you or love you. You might think you're alone instead of right in the very heart of God and right in the very center of the company of his people. And so, instead of asking God how his power can be made perfect in our weakness, we find ourselves looking for a way out. Instead of growing in character and hope through perseverance, we'll dart this way and that looking for any exit strategy or coping mechanism. Instead of developing intimacy with God in the middle of our suffering, we'll feel estranged from God and wondering where He is. Satan tells you you don't have to suffer. That we can turn stones into bread. That we can secure glory in this world. That we don't have to hurt Jesus shows us that these momentary afflictions are preparing in us a weight of glory beyond comprehension. Jesus is making a people of courage in the midst of suffering, not people who run away from it, in order that we might willingly suffer to love others, to share with others, to come alongside others in this world, rather than securing glory and comfort for ourselves. Now listen, there is suffering that we experience because of sin in this world. That is not what we're talking about tonight. This isn't about abuse or harm which comes from living in wicked and evil ways. This isn't about saying yes to suffering, which is the direct result of sin. Peter talks about this emphatically in one of his letters. This is about you choosing to give rather than hoard. This is about risking vulnerability rather than protecting ourselves. This is about a willingness to be uncomfortable, to make others comfortable, to be humble, to chase humility rather than pride, to forego worldly glory and fame in order to lift up others, to love others at a cost to ourselves. There is a suffering inherent to the love or to, there is a suffering inherent to love in this world. But Jesus shows that it is the only way to follow him. Friends, what happens in this passage after the claim that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and then Jesus tells them to be quiet is that we realize they don't know what that means. And we can learn from it that it's not enough just to know who Jesus is. Even the demons know that. And shudder, James says. We must also know what he came to do. To suffer and to die for us. And that we are called to follow him. Trusting. That he can secure all of what we need. That he can provide for us in our every moment. That he can bring us through our sufferings to glory. That he can raise us from the dead. Creating in us a people who do not run away from suffering. And orient our lives around it. And dodge it like every other kingdom of this world is attempting to do. There was this story from the first century... Christians were, were these strange people who like took a day off, you know, and it was really weird. But amongst the many weird things that they did, one of them was there was this habit of 
of, um, for, for a, a certain amount of time, decades it seems, in the Roman Empire, of taking unwanted, it was a kind of abortion. You would take unwanted children, and there was this particular bridge uh, in this one town where they would throw their babies off the bridge into the water if they were unwanted. And Christians were known and mocked for being people who would take stations and wait in boats to go out and rescue these kids from the water and then give them to Christian families to raise them. At, at their own cost, being mocked because it wasn't, that, that was ridiculous in that world, overpopulation and unwanted children and these kinds of things. But at the cost of themselves, the ridicule from the culture, at their own financial costs, at their own shame and honor costs, that's the kind of thing that God marks us to do. Not people who are so worried about the culture around us, not people who are so worried about getting all we can before we die, but people who look at Jesus and say, if our Lord was willing to say yes to suffering and die and he rose from the grave and he's promised that I am going to have his destiny too, the sting of death is gone. And now I have the courage to face sufferings, not avoid it. Now, I don't need to have every single dollar I make be considered mine like Gollum or something. But I can trust that God is going to give me what I need. Instead of chasing some kind of golden parachute into retirement or something like this, I could give generously and radically. I don't need everything that I make. Jesus releases us to do these kinds of things in the world. This is what we have seen and heard in Jesus. That the way to glory in his kingdom is through suffering, not around it. That the way to life is through death, not around it. That not even suffering and death can separate us from the love of God. And therefore, we don't need to be afraid of it. What would it look like if we became a people who could not only recognize the voice of God, but also recognize the voice of Satan in this world and reject him? I want to pray for us tonight, but I want you to take a minute and I want you to consider, we, we just every week we'll take a minute just to reflect and pray. I want you to consider if there's something God might be calling you to reject because it's a promise of this world where you're not trusting God's provision. And though it might feel hard, what would it look like for you to trust Jesus that he could provide for your needs? Where might be something in this life right now that God is calling you to say, get behind Jesus, Satan. Stop tempting me. Take a minute to think about that and I'll close us in prayer.